the real competitor to medical cannabis is opiates. And opiates are free. You can get high on morphine because your doctor prescribes it. It's paid by the insurance system. And there's no way to get out of that. And for patients who don't have the ability to pay for this type of products, they rather probably get a free morphine than pay for cannabis out of pocket. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, I got a very special guest, Alvaro Torres, CEO of Chiron. Alvaro, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Hi, Brian. How are you? Hi, Kellen. Nice to, nice to see you again. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, really excited to talk to Alvaro. I mean, just couldn't be more excited to learn about international cannabis. And I think it's the next wave of the industry. How are you, Brian? I'm excited also. I think so much on this podcast, we talk about what's going on in the United States. And I think we need to kind of take a, a higher level perspective out and have like a real macro global game because at, at its core, cannabis is a global game. And Alvaro, we usually have an East Coast, West Coast battle. So I guess it's finally time to have an outside choice. Uh, this have to be what? A, a global participant? What do you think, Kellen? Yeah. Global. Where, where, where are you residing globally? I am here in Bogota, in Colombia. So West, East, and now the South is coming strong. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> so for Alvaro, for our listeners that aren't familiar about you, can you give it a little background about yourself? Yes, Brian. Uh, well, so uh, I'm an engineer by trade. I went to school in the United States, in upstate New York, RPI. I don't know if this, you know the school. I got my master's there, got an MBA in Georgetown. Um, and then my life has been around infrastructure pipelines and buildings and power lines. Um, that's been all you know, since I was very little because my parents used to own one of the country's biggest engineering companies. Five, six years ago, I moved out from engineering. I found that cannabis could be something life-changing and dramatically uh, disruptive to, to the health industry. I didn't know anything about cannabis. I, I'm not a regular user of marijuana on my own. Never really tried it that much. I started a company because I felt that uh, there was something, a need to be able to help patients. And even though I didn't know anything about cannabis, I got to learn pretty quickly. And then you start trying to figure out how to improve the quality of people's lives. Um, and I do have that engineering mentality of step one, two, three, how do you solve that, those type of problems? I guess that helped me a little bit in, in trying to set this up, but... Um, you know, I, I think right now being able to build what we build uh, is a testament to all of that. Years and years of good training, good parents, good friends, and uh, good investors. So we like to talk about the hesitation some have when diving into cannabis. So from your perspective and your parents kind of weighing in, was there any hesitations for you to kind of take an engineering background and kind of come into cannabis? Yes, yes. I think first time uh, we sort of had the guts to say it out loud, hey, you know, maybe I will move from building billion-dollar airports <laughs> to uh, starting a cannabis company. First thing everybody asks you is like, I, I didn't know you were a pothead. <laughs> you, you look too educated to be a pothead. How did we send you go to Georgetown, coming back and smoking pot? Um, and of course, I don't really use it at all. I, if I've used it three times in my life, that would be way too much. So that was the first thing. Uh, sort of the first reaction most people had, friends, family, uh, in, no, in no way sort of saying don't do it at all. Just it's shocking that you want to go into that when you're, you know, all your life has been in project, physical projects, billion dollars. And, um, but then you start explaining why I'm getting into this. And it's not because I like marijuana, it's because I found that we live in a region where healthcare is too expensive and it makes no sense that we pay international companies to produce products that are very expensive for our patients. And we, we could produce it here. We could sell it here. And we could improve the quality of life here. And we could create an economy here. And then, you know, after five minutes, after, okay, whatever, go, go and do it. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the, the first uh, reaction. And, you know, you start these businesses, I, you know, we start talking to people that know you, trying to raise capital here and, I guess six years, five years ago, uh, it was such a taboo subject uh, that you know nobody really understood what it what it meant. But there's a lot of funny stories about and all of those things. Uh, people who really didn't um, understand it. And in Spanish, my name Alvaro, uh, we have a word for marijuana called Bareto, and so people used to call me Alvareto. 
about them in the day. I think sometimes sticks when late night, a couple of drinks, people still call me that. But yeah, it was, it was quite a shock, but um, very supportive. So what is the current status of Colombia from a, a medical standpoint, adult use? How does that work for, for those who are unfamiliar? And then what's Chiron's role in, in kind of assisting the, the change of the industry? Well, um, I think Colombia is one of the most advanced countries when it comes to regulation of medical cannabis. It is true that it's only focused on oils and extracts as a medical market, but it's also true that the government uh, has unequivocally decided to cover medical cannabis for patients, which is really, you think other countries that have this, you think about Germany, but not the United States for sure, certainly not Canada. And that's really the, the best way to really encourage an industry to flourish because the real competitor to medical cannabis is opiates and opiates are free. You can get high on morphine because your doctor prescribes it. It's paid by the insurance system and there's no way to get out of that. And for patients who don't have the ability to pay for this type of products, they rather probably get a free morphine than pay for cannabis out of pocket. So I think that decision from the government has been very, very strong. Colombia is not a small country, it's 50 million people, 6 million people with chronic pain. So there's a real need for it to make changes on this regulation so that, you know, the country realizes that this is a way not just to create economy, but also to reduce the cost of healthcare. And I think regarding the role of Chiron, and, and this is going to sound a bit smug, and I don't want it to come across of that, but I think the last five years, Chiron has been at the center of all that change. And I, I don't mean to be smug about it, but it has been sort of the purpose of our lives, of my life, to be able to change regulation and improve the quality of people's lives. That means that everything we've built so far is to be able to generate data, uh, to be able to show the, the, the doctors, the patients, insurance companies, banks. We've been at the forefront of all these fights with the banking industry to get bank accounts. Okay, we want that. To get the first uh, license to cultivate, to have our own pharmacy because nobody else wanted to distribute it, and then show the government the data to say, listen, this is safe medication. It can be produced here in the country. You can create a lot of jobs, but most importantly for you, there's a lot of pharmacoeconomic benefits. It can do a lot of good and it can be cheaper for you. Just to finalize that, yeah, we've been at the forefront of that. I think everybody in the country not only understands it, but recognizes the role that Kyron has had in all these changes in the regulation. I want to stick with the impact you're having on so many people's lives. So I think I read on your guys' website that there's probably 620 million patients in South America. So like according to your data, that number is going to grow, right? Just as more uses for the plant are adopted for medical purposes. So how do you prepare your organization for that kind to meet those kind of demands? Well, I think uh, the way you have to think about Chiron is we are very focused on building the demand. We are not that interested or we are not interested at all in building the supply side of it. Our strategy, particularly starting on, has been to grow a small amount of cannabis, right? But starting this year onwards, I'm very sure that most of that supply that we will need is going to come from all the sources of people who can actually produce that. So cannabis, there's a science to it, of course, but there's plenty of companies that can provide that type of product. I think the challenge is not on the supply side, it's on how do you put those bottles, those products in the hands of a patient once, twice, three times, 12 times a year, right? And so the company was vertically integrated, but just for the purpose that we had to do it because somebody had to do it first. Yeah. But my obsession and the obsession of the company is on building the demand. So, you know, when you think about how to tackle all of that, let's take out the, the part where we think, that we need to cultivate all of that because that's not the way it's going to work. Every country eventually will have its own supply chain. Uh, what really growers and extraction companies need is a market and that market needs to be built. So the challenge of building that demand on that side then comes with being able to publish information to show the doctors that it works. It doesn't happen overnight at all, of course, but now that Colombia has uh, agreed to... Uh, insurance coverage, you can take that evidence to Brazil, to Colombia, to Peru, to Mexico. Slowly and slowly, you're going to be able to get all these people to understand that this, that this matters. And today it's not a, a big taboo as I was when I started the company. So you had, you see a lot more patients wanting to, to think about it and you work with a very efficient supply chain. 
And that's the way we're actually doing it in Europe because it wasn't really important to us to service all of that on our own. I think we need to be agents of change socially as well. Um, that means that we need to be able to see how we can produce change on others. Uh, how do we have economics on other countries? How do people can benefit from the work that we do and not necessarily have to grow it ourselves? I think that's so important, right? Because when we talk about it, how early we still are in the in the infancy of the industry, agency of change is critical because your team isn't kind of following the road in front. It is chopping down the trees and making the path forward where there is no road before. And I think people sometimes forget that we are still so early that your team is having to make that road to, to pent up that demand and the supply is going to have to go. So the industry is scaling with your team. Yes, yes, Brad. I think the beauty and the tough part of the company is that there is no road to follow. Nobody told us that the only that the best way to sell cannabis was go and build your own clinics. And all of these things that we've done, sometimes you miss, of course, but that's also part of the learning curve of how do you get it better. And part of that learning was also to understand that you know, we, if we focus on the demand side, this idea of supply chain and we grow it ourselves starts to make little little sense for our business. But um, I think it's also exciting when you're able to spend months, months trying to get a government to change their views. I mean, we also got just the NHS in UK to cover our first patient in the UK, right? And so th- that takes months and that takes a lot of trial and error. And then you say, people come back to you and say, well, that was only one patient. They're like, yeah, well, you know, it's just one guy. <laughs> um, but if you understand that those are the necessary steps to change what's happening, five years from now, we'll see an industry that's very well developed, very medical, and where there's going to be plenty of room for everybody to compete. But it does take that first patient to go that route, that first government official, maybe the second is easier, and by the time you're in your first 10,000 patients, it's a piece of cake. Of course, to get there, it's going to be a bit more challenging, but, you know. We have to it's all downhill from there, right? Once you get to 10,000, yeah. it's all downhill. Every, everyone forgets. <laughs> someone has to be first, right? Like everyone forgets that like in the beginning of industry, someone has to be first. So I want to talk about the, the first medical cannabis contract with one of Columbia's largest insurance companies. How long does something like that take in order to achieve the finish line? And like, what type of resources go into something like making something like that actually happen? Well, um, I would say it, it's taken us nine months <laughs> to get this done. But the entire idea is that, you know, we, we have our clients are insurance companies in Colombia, right? So they send us patients, we treat them for pain, for neurological situations, for sleep disorders and mental health. And we know how to use cannabis. So we are, you know, funneling some of these patients to use cannabis. That's the way we've been doing it. But also at the same time, we are always thinking, I mean, eventually somebody will catch up to that. How do we go after clients and show them that it's no longer about just sending us patients. We have to be very clear that medical cannabis works and how do we get those type of clients? And we were lucky because the city of Bogota, I don't know if you've been to Bogota, but it's 9 million people. This is a major metropolis. Um, about in March, they started trying to get the city to be a hub for medical cannabis. If you look at the at the PR, we even have a quote from one of the top councilmen there who you know, was promoting the fact that Bogota should be a hub for research, a hub for development of medical cannabis. So taking that, we went to Capital Salud, which is, you know, the top, the largest insurance company in Bogota that's also publicly owned. And uh, we started talking about how can we help them treat their patients. Now, sometimes these things happen because uh, nice accidents and, you know, you have to be prepared for that. But the first thing they really, they asked us is, you know, the problem that we have is that specialized clinics like yourselves are only in the nicer parts of town. And our patients, a 1.2 million population, are in the outskirts of the city where the access to high-quality medical services is not too good. And then when they said that, we replied, well, do you know that Chiron just built two new clinics in January and February in those parts of town? And that when you talk about opportunity meets, you know, uh, luck, is because when we did that back then, it was a year ago, it's because I always felt that we have a tremendous, um, tremendously good service. And that service in healthcare, we really want to change 
people's lives has to be equal anywhere in the city. So it just so happened that when they go and see that, I say, so you have clinics near to where my patients live. Absolutely. Here's the capacity. We build two of them. And then we start looking at, okay, so we can do this with medical cannabis, but also for them, well, we've never had a private clinic of that level of service near to where patients live. And so that took that conversation. They had to do a tender, by the way, because it's a public company. Um, but of course, there's nobody else that can sort of try to get that job done. We went through a tender process. At the same time, you know, we are, we had patients from them that were coming to the clinic paying out of pocket because they were not our clients. So the first thing we started saying is, well, third thing is, listen, there's already patients that are very poor that are coming to our clinic paying whatever, $50 a bottle who have now, are now forced to be interrupting their, their, their uh, product because they can no longer afford it. As all these things started combining together, uh, you know, we had quality visits. We had many meetings uh, with them on, on, their, on the proposal. How do we get this done? Because nobody's ever done something like that. It's, this contract is specifically for chemical cannabis treatments. Um, and so, of course, you have to also understand that this is a public entity. It takes time. Uh, they cannot just give you a contract. That's not the way it works. We signed it on December 27th. Uh, we started on December 28th. Um, so I'm very excited about it because it's a very large insurance company because I think it validates all the pains and all this jungle that you're doing. It validates a lot of that because we built the clinics. Nobody told us to do it because we did uh, all this. We invested a lot in quality service for the patients, uh, waiting times, things like that. And then somebody comes in and says, well, that's really what I need. And now I'm hoping that taking this sample, we can go out there and to all insurance companies in Colombia and show them we can manage the patient for you, which I think it's interesting because what we're doing now is saying to the insurance company, give me your patient. We will take care of this patient. We will do all the quality controls that you need, but let us manage that patient's pain. It could be with cannabis. It can be with something else. So this model of integrative care finally Let's say I found, uh, we found a client that says, that's exactly what I need because what I need is to make sure that our patients are feeling better. And so I think, it, and it's been very well advertised in the country, in the city particularly, because it breaks the taboo. It's the first time a insurance company says publicly, hey, go to these guys and they'll treat you. And they, if, if medical cannabis is applicable, there's no fear for you to take it. So... I keep dreaming about that, what that could be outside also. Uh, when you combine it with the NHS news in the UK, it just sort of tells you we are wrong a lot of times, but maybe the, the good things that we do um, have a very important impact. And I think they're going to have an impact not only in Cairon, but on the entire country and on the entire continent. Because the moment somebody has the guts to do something like this, then other people follow. And if those people follow, then we're going to have a market. Yeah, I want to stay with uh, the the conversation on the insurance. So, when you were working with with them, was there certain stipulations they had about products that you guys could prescribe to potential patients, or were they kind of just like very hands off? Like that's your guys's world of expertise. You handle it from there, and we'll just kind of trust your guidance. So, Kelly, I told you before about the the evidence that we have built. Yeah. So we we started in Colombia with five products, oil, oil, oil-based, that's sublingual, high THC to high CBD, five different products. And we've been doing this for two years, right? Uh, so when you have more than 25,000 patients, you have a lot of data yeah. regarding what works and what doesn't work. We, we've been, we made four publications, international uh, publications regarding use of cannabis uh, with populations up to 2,500 patients, things that not, not a lot of people can do or have been able to do. So when we're talking to them first, it's like you have to understand that the government itself was already saying, okay, this, let's say these five products or these five combinations work. But then you start showing them the data. They interview their patients. They see, okay, so it's not just prescribe whatever cannabis you want, but there's evidence and there's science behind it. You've made your publications and we know and we can see from your data that it's a safe product. So that also started the conversation about it because it's not just like, Somebody cultivate cannabis, smoke it, and they feel better. So that ability to bring down that 
adult use to a, something more scientific that has been published, it, it also allows the city, you can go back to the, to the notion that the city wants to be a hub for it. So it's perfect for them because it means, okay, so with this, we can probably work with Cairo and other companies so we can start developing more, more, more data, more science, and really be a hub. So it, it, it does take data and, and evidence, and those are the things that happen below the surface. Uh, but if we didn't have that, I don't think we would, we would be talking today about that. Yeah, so the, the nine-month uh, contract negotiation with the insurance company was really years in the making to get all the data to make oh, yeah. such a smooth <laughs> yeah, yeah, conversation. Yeah. yeah, sometimes I think... Um, some people forget how difficult it is to get these things because when you talk about health, it's about responsibility. Uh, we've invested a lot of capital, a lot of, a lot of time and effort to build you know, our systems, uh, data, how do we collect it every day, the doctors, the training. It doesn't work all the time. I mean, when we started in Colombia, we sold eight units the first month, right? And you have to be patient because you have to see how those eight units work because some of the patients, their families don't want them to get into cannabis. It's a lot of breaking barriers that you're doing, but thankfully we did, because I don't think right now, if we hadn't, I don't think there would be a market in Colombia, even if it was insured, because doctors and patients in Latin America don't know what it does, and doctors don't know how to prescribe it. So you have to show them all the time the evidence. We even have evidence, Kellen, of patients that we have taken out of cannabis. And when you start to show that, you realize that these guys are being responsible. Some patients don't respond well to it. And then you have to start doing programs on taking them out of it, not give them opiates, but think about something else. And that, for example, when we start showing that, that meant, okay, there's a big responsibility here. These guys are not just selling cannabis. Um, and so, you know, it, it, do, it, did, it did take two and a half years, but um, I want to think about the next two. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, I think like sometimes we forget how hard it is to change people's minds. And of course, like we can talk about the United States and how um, difficult that has been because people have their own self-interest that are leading to decisions that sometimes don't represent what the data actually says. But I want to stay with what you said in Columbia about the data side. And I know you said you don't do the, the cultivation of it. So are you importing the, the cannabis? And what's the status with flour? How does that work? No, we, had, uh, we have our own cultivation facility. That's how we started the company. It's a small facility of 80, almost 80,000 square feet of grow. I mean, compared to what Colombians have, there's 2,000 million hectares of cannabis being grown for medical purposes. I think the last three, four months, the decision that we've been making also is, well, that's not the focus of our business. So we've been winding down a lot of that operation, which also reduces a lot of our cash burn. Uh, and talking to third parties in, here in Colombia. Uh, because I think most people would recognize that Chiron in this country, in Latin America, is a potentially very big or one of your largest clients. But, you know, we've been now winding all of that because I, I think that now that we know what we want to sell, uh, how we put in the, in the hands of patients, the production aspect of it uh, is never necessarily something that interests us. I mean, three years ago, Brian, if you, we had talked, I, I would have told you that you know, when we started the company with my partners, we always thought about companies like Danone, you know, the dairy company, and how they don't need any cows. Right? But so how do we evolve into that, which is why we never build a very big facility. I think it's about quality control, etc. But our European operations showed us that we can do it without touching the plant, and we can grow as long as you know what's in the product, what do you want in the product, and how do you get doctors to prescribe it. So let's 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 go to the European assets because I think that's really fascinating and I, I can't wait to do a compare and contrast with the United States. So what assets does Chiron have in Europe? Well, I think first and foremost, people. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but if you think about a company like Chiron, nine months getting these type of contracts done, and it really does does take a lot of knowledge about the market. Uh, so our team is fully European, which is very important. You have to understand the different types of cultures. Um, and I'll start with that because I don't think I, I will be here talking to you without, you know, Francie and Fred and all the rest of the team that we have there. Uh, and I think secondly, now that you understand what the market is, you understand the rules, uh, because it's a very regulated market, you need to understand how it works, not without cutting any corners, which is not something that 
we like to do at all. Uh, and now lately we acquired a distribution company in Germany called the Pharma Drug. And the reason we acquired it is because just like in Latin America, data matters. The closer you are to the patient, the more data points you can collect and all that allows us to come up with a better product. And Pharma Drug has all the data from all the pharmacies that we go to and that allows us to understand what the market is headed, what the price points are, what are the patients looking for. And then with that information, you can try to go back and figure out what type of supply you need. And then in UK, we opened a Serenia clinic as well, almost a year ago, a little bit more, because in the UK, we see the same challenge. Patients want cannabis, medical cannabis. There's not enough doctors prescribing it. So we, what we did is took the model from Colombia, we put in the UK, it's all virtual, but that's become a very important channel for us. But it also allows the patient to have a follow-up, the same things we do in Colombia with a different market, and then figure out how the supply chain works through pharma drug, which dispenses the product. So right now we have a very solid European group. It's very non-plant touching. We actually don't cultivate ourselves. It's more about access to the patient. So in the UK, we could have a clinic. So let's get a clinic. In Germany, we cannot have clinics, but we can have distribution. Let's go after that. And then combine all of that information so we can create a sustainable business. So we've been in Europe almost more than, no, we started three years ago. I don't think anybody would have given me a cent. Uh, what does a Colombian-based company have to do in Europe? And uh, now everybody says, what does a European company have to do in Colombia? <laughs> so <laughs> you sort of... Uh, I'm going to have to change my accent to um, more Spanish or German or <laughs> um, to see if we can get that. But uh, it, it's really interesting the amount of data that we can collect. Our science officer is in Spain. He's actually a Spanish citizen. So we can combine the, the Latin American culture with the European culture and try to figure out how do we start publishing more information. And that allows us to build a very good credibility with the patients. They don't really mind if you're selling cannabis in Colombia, Peru, or Brazil. But when you're talking about a company that's able to generate all this information and science and evidence, that matters a lot. How well do you think the, the data transfers like country to country and like culture to culture? Is it seamless or do you notice like certain differences? Well, uh, it started... <laughs> the beginning of it wasn't that easy, right? Because... Yeah. Uh, we're talking, let's say, in the Europe, we talk more about flour and Latin America is more oils. Now we are already selling flour in the, in, in the European market, uh, which is why we decided to have, let's call it the consolidation of all these science in Spain uh, with our chief um, scientific officer, because every country has its own needs, what they need to publish. But we also need to understand that those needs are more important if we can figure out what the needs of the entire, let's call it, worldwide view are. In Colombia, nobody probably cares about flour base used in the UK, right? But if you're having the conversation regarding uh, adult use in Colombia one day, that starts to matter. So it seems very seamless now. I mean, we have a centralized data system. Anybody can access it. And, and the decision of what type of products, what type of research we'll start doing comes from Spain, like from our team in Spain to try to understand what we need. If you look at, for example, in Colombia, the most important part today is pharmacoeconomic studies. Let's show that it's cheaper, et cetera, and that's better. That's a different type of study than what we need in UK, which is more doctors to prescribe. So we need to ha start having more evidence regarding the current use of cannabis and how patients are doing better. Uh, so it's a very seamless transition now. And thankfully, Guillermo speaks many languages, so he helps a lot. Um, and at the beginning, it's just a matter of everybody wants to, everybody always wants to do research, but it has to be something that applies to the company in terms of how do we create more markets or how do we get governments behind it? There will be a time, Brian, where we'll be researching new products and new SKUs. But today, the game is about with what we have or what's available, how do we, how do we break those barriers? So just to reiterate, to make sure I understand correctly, when your team goes into a new country, you have to identify the problem that the regulators need and then work backwards with the data in order to prevail a convincing argument specific for that country to help access for a wider group. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, Brian. I think regulation is the number one priority in cannabis. 
it's quite challenging to understand that you need to identify what the problem is first in order to put the resources behind <laughs> it to solve the problem that you need to figure out what the problem is first. But you know, Brian, that's how we started in Europe. You know, three years ago when I met Francie and the team and she brought the team, uh, everybody was talking about Colombia exporting cheap flour to, to Europe. And the first conversation we're having is there's no way that Colombia can actually do this in the next three years with a quality product that patients want, right? So what you're saying is not just about EUGMPs, it's about quality. If a patient sees a mold in a product, they're going to destroy your Reddit. But it's also about the shelf life and also how fast the trends in cannabis consumption change. When you talk about a flower market, it's not like oils, no? One day is Gorilla Glue, next day is Hindukush, right? So... I'm probably using those names wrong. So please, You're right. I like that. That works for me. That's uh, for us. But that's how we started. Let's figure out the regulation. It cannot be Colombia. Where can we source it? What type of product can we source? And it does take time. But then you realize, you know, when you go to market, patients, that's what they want. And I think most of cannabis companies have always been solving for what they can sell, uh, what they can produce. And uh, sometimes, even ourselves, we we believe our own BS about what do we have that's so great, but the market is thinking about something else. So those companies who are able to solve for that demand, uh, like in the States, you know, it's plenty of examples, right? But they understand the consumer very well. And then they work backwards. It's just, of course, regulatory-wise, it may be a little bit simpler. <laughs> but it is this successful companies always have to think about what the patients need, not what they want, because otherwise nobody would want uh, an iPhone uh, when they came out with it, but what they need. And if you figure that out, then you can have a very successful business. So can you currently export cannabis from Colombia to Europe? There are companies, I understand, that have been able to ship flour to Europe right now and to Israel. That's not really our focus, is not to export. And so I, I, we, we don't do it. We export finished product to Brazil and Peru. Uh, but not to uh, not to Europe, just because the quality standards are very different, and I think there's plenty better companies that can do that for us. Uh, but there has been there have been Colombian companies exporting already. I don't know if they have exported finished product or more like raw materials. Um, maybe one day they'll get there. Um, I just you know, that was not really our intention from the get go. Sure, and the reason I ask is because as your company continues to expand, economies of scale and relying on vendors across your organization are really critical to have sustainable quality control products. So that's why I was wondering is if down the line, if there's an opportunity to have that scalable feature where you grow in one country and you can kind of export across all of your assets across the world. Yes, I think we we can. And, and uh, what Cairo has been able to do, particularly with this insurance thing in Colombia, I said it before, but we are recognized as the client to have. And I don't mean to sound again, not too humble, but we have invested a lot of time to getting that. It's, co- it's, it's confidence. We like, yes, we like to call it being confident. But <laughs> as you should, though, right? You've achieved yeah. a substantial goal yeah. and you've changed the minds and, and influenced a big step forward. And you're the only ones that can claim to have done that. So, hey, yeah. you should be proud yeah. of what you've accomplished. Yeah. So, so I think we we are uh, certainly recognized for that. A lot of companies understand the European footprint. We will be agnostic regarding that as well. The things that we think about that are also the changing regulatory environment. I don't know, but I think in five years, cannabis shipping across the world will probably be a little bit harder. I think every country will want to have its own product and they will probably try to make it more difficult to get product cheaper from outside. And I say, because I think about Mexico and Brazil, right? Now you're, you're, you're hearing about a lot of UK companies who are cultivating the UK and Brexit. And so... I think about things like lead times, for instance. That's, those are the type of things that we think about. How do we improve lead times? How do we get the product faster from one place to the next? What are the, the customs type of things that we need to make sure that uh, we don't have a product problem with? Um, and maybe one day the Colombian market will be able to service that. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of challenges right now to get that good product in the hands of a patient but of course, everybody here knows that if we keep growing our European business and we can find the right supply chain, you know, why don't we source it in Colombia from a EU GMP facility? For sure. I just don't know yet 
how the time frame for all of these things will be. Um, and God knows, you know, if Mexico one day does come online, <laughs> there will be a be a powerful player to compete with. Well, I'm going to have to save my follow-up question because that is our prediction question for later. So we'll have to hold that, that question. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for a specific timeline for that. So let's talk about the perspective on the United States. Obviously, the United States has made a ton of noise and likes to put themselves at the center of almost all the conversations. So do you use the U.S. as a reference and how do you evaluate opportunities here in the States and what's happening? Well, I use it as a reference in the sense that you see every state opening up even for medical like Florida you realize like there's a very big market everywhere. Uh, if you can just break those barriers, you also have to realize that Florida has been legal for how many, like, it's not yesterday, no? It's been legal for many, many years. Just today, the last three years have been uh, growing up more. So I, I also look at it in terms of we do some of these things. These are the markets that are going to be like Florida five years ago. That's, that's where we are today. So I, I really look at that in terms of the product mix, the easiness, quote unquote, to get these products, how the taboos have been reduced. And I think all of that cascades down and uh, eastwards so that le- more and more people are less wary of cannabis because they see the United States as such a big story. On the other hand, of course, you are also realizing that living markets, Europe and Latin America, that are taking medical cannabis as a true FDA type of product which means that the quality standards are way higher than the United States. Because, of course, if one day the FDA decides to really regulate the CBD industry, God knows how many millions of inventory will have to be dropped off the shelves, right? Because none of these products are FDA approved. Well, except, no, the, the, the ones that we know of, Epidiolex, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's always sometimes a challenge because, you know, we talk about gummy bears. Yeah, gummy bears are amazing. Yeah, but in our countries, it's a food. And there's regulations for it, but it, it does make the conversation easier with authorities when it comes to, hey, uh, maybe you should also be able to regulate this. Look at what's happening in California. So I, I take that a, a, a lot as an example, but I also think about this. You asked me about the how cannabis will be shipped worldwide. And I think about the fact that you cannot take cannabis from Florida to California, no. <laughs> uh, even within one country. So I think the challenges of all of these you're seeing in the States why would the governor of Massachusetts in the winter allow for cheap Oregon THC to come in and destroy jobs? Um, and those type of things I, I think about when we look at this international supply chain strategy. It turns out if you are a medical cannabis user and you have a back pain here in New York, when you leave New York, your back pain leaves and you don't have to worry about that problem anymore because <laughs> it's only subject to New York. So uh, it turns out that's a, a singular state problem. So is there conversations about uh, let's say, synergies with American companies about changing of information and alliance partnerships as the game continues to evolve from a global standpoint? Well, you know, in the last four weeks, I've actually had a lot of conversations and emails just, you know, to begin because uh, people who are in the business, in the medical cannabis business, understand that what we did with the insurance coverage in Colombia is huge. Yeah. And how did you get that done? Of course, it takes years, but how did you get that done? And how can we take that model to the States? I'm not talking about transporting cannabis. I'm talking about the model of data, yeah. you know, what type of products and who are the right people to talk to. There's a lot of advocates for this, state-wise, wide, sorry. The last four weeks have been quite busy on that front because you know, there's a secret sauce. Nobody, nobody knows what it is, but there's, this guy's got something done. Uh, maybe there's something that we can take to the United States. We can... You know, for, for the medical market, we can actually get that type of insurance coverage. And what insurance coverage also means, means that your competition with the black market stops being so one-sided. Because if you can get patients to get it, let's quote unquote, for free, then the price points, the wars that everybody's having in California and Canada may no longer apply. Uh, so... This is why I have been advocating for, for coverage in Colombia for the last three years. Because if there's a country that can produce cannabis cheap, it's this one, no? <laughs> like all day, year <laughs> round. Uh, no winters, no, just neither <laughs> rains or rains less. <laughs> uh, so that's, I think, what's been interesting the last four weeks. I do see a lot of synergies in taking that model 
uh, because, you know, not as taking the product. With, certainly Californians don't need that. <laughs> you guys have more excuse than anybody, but it could be in the, in the sense of this IP, this knowledge that we've developed, maybe we can take it somewhere else in a, in a capital efficient way and get other companies to realize, hey, maybe we can get that done. And whoever hits that holy grail is going to be very successful. Yeah, in in essence, you guys are just kind of a a data company, eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've always looked at kind of more of a healthcare company that manages data. Um, oh, I like that. That's, sounds, that's got a better sound to it. <laughs> <laughs> but cannabis was a very interesting way to start. But if you think about it in the future, um, and we don't believe in traditional medication because we've seen the damage it does. Uh, one day, when the country legalizes psychedelics, we can certainly do the same thing. Yeah. A company is not about growing cannabis or psychedelics or whatever it is. It's about using that information to change those the, the, the dogmas of the way that we've been for the last hundred years, being blind to products that make us feel like zombies and that are really bad and that create a, a very bad social fabric. I mean, Colombia certainly has suffered a lot from that. So I, I hope one day, and I think this transition that we're making out of cultivation uh, will continue to impact people that we we like to manage that. If I can spend most of my day analyzing data with the European team, I would love that because you start finding nuggets of little things that have been working and how can we make that work better? And we're going to be forced to do that a lot more, Kevin, because with this new client, when they're telling us, why don't you take care of our patient? That means we have to know more about that patient than that patient himself or herself yeah. or themselves. Because we need to sort of anticipate what that patient's treatment will be. Uh, it's a very exciting challenge. Uh, so yeah, data, healthcare. One day we won't be we will be talking about cannabis as just one product out of many. Yeah, because the data really is just the first piece in personalized medicine as a as a whole. So realistically, you have the opportunity to participate in the healthcare industry as a whole. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I'm so excited about this client. And that's why it took us nine months. That's why they did a tender. Nobody really could understand what we're trying to do because these guys at Chiron and Serenia is the name of our clinic. They're not trying to sell us cannabis. And so when you can be, you can become an insurance company for the insurance company. I think that's really what for me will be the Holy Grail. Um, and this NHS patient that we got covered, the first one is also, that's the route I want to make in three years hopefully less, uh, but it's really about taking care of that. If you really have that point contact with the patient and you quote unquote own that relationship, you're going to be very successful. You can be very sustainable. And then you can be more agnostic about what will work later. All I know is that I want to prescribe opiates <laughs> if I can avoid it. So, But anything else and science will evolve, I think. And yeah. cannabis will evolve a lot in that know-how as well. I, I think it's a very different strategy than what we do, we usually see here in America. And I'm glad to hear that some of the operators are reaching out for experience. Is that a cold phone call? Is that an email? Is that a Laro? Hey, we got some issues going on. Can you help us? And is that executive <laughs> to executive or is that someone different on the team? I mean, this relationship really started at a conference, right? When we had our one of our lead doctors. And then you start trying to have those conversations from the bottom up to convince them that we have the right infrastructure, that they can ask 10,000 questions about our systems. And that's when you start talking to the rest of the executives, et cetera. Um, so it's always both sides. I I can't tell you I'm the least guy who actually has to do any of that um, because you know I don't really, I really speak the language. I'm sure my team uh, is more qualified to do that. But I think the, the language of data gets everybody excited uh, because when you're able to show it, and then I love when a client comes back and asks 10,000 questions that we don't know the answer. Because to get to those questions, we have to answer 1 million questions that nobody else could answer. <laughs> exactly. And I said, we say to the team, the moment, the moment we're able to answer all the questions correctly, that means we're asking the wrong questions. Because you always have to be able to think about what are we missing. And you know, we, we work a lot on that. But it takes time. And, and, and it also takes the patience. The patients are really at the center. They're the ones making the decision. They're the ones putting the pressure sometimes. And it takes one, ten, a thousand. And when somebody, the decision makers then say, 
okay, okay, we got to go with these guys and look at what they can offer. What is one factor statistic about the global cannabis landscape that most Americans wouldn't know? Oof. That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. I would say that um, from our experience, <laughs> that's a very good question. I would guess that uh, most people would think that Colombians are pot smokers because we've, we produce so much of it. For uh, one of the things I always get funny questions that when I say, well, we don't really smoke that much cannabis. Like, impossible. You guys have sold so much of it. Mexicans don't either. And they say, well, you know, we've been selling all this cannabis to you guys for 50 years. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> we really never had a, a local market. Uh, I find that people are more very impressed with the fact that the region itself is not very well known for cannabis use. I love that. Yeah. When you got started in your in your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? I think I've gotten a lot more wrong things are right, but I think the right ones have had tremendous impact. I think the one thing that I got right first is the people that I work with, because it takes a special type of person to go every day and try to find a new battle you know, and, and break that break that ground. The clinic idea, I think that strategy has been, uh, even to this day, very unique and has made us you know where we are today, going into Europe, for sure. Um, I mean, Europe is now becoming such an important part of our business, but also it helps us diversify the risk a lot. And I'm very proud of the work that we've been doing there with you know, few resources. So those three, I would say, you know, have been like, okay, those those ideas. On the bad one, I could put a whole list of, of things that, that we haven't done well. I would say the number one error is, uh, at the beginning in particular, you are always more optimistic than realistic about the market and how fast things can be. Of course, if you had been more realistic, probably you wouldn't have done it. But I think sometimes, and I am guilty of that as well, you put a lot of optimism in a lot of these ideas. Um, and I tell you, for example, we launched a very beautiful thermocosmetic line about three years ago. That was our first product. Um, I'm very proud of that, even though we had to shut it down in the pandemic. But then you start realizing how difficult it is to get the market that you want, you know, the total addressable market faster in your door, how much you have to spend to introduce a new product and, and how little reward you get for it in the short term. But that's also because you're thinking optimistically, maybe these markets will happen faster. So I think that's always been a trade since we started. And I think I'm not alone in, in that conversation. Uh, but certainly with a little bit more, I wouldn't say realism, but not optimism, you could have probably avoided some you know, some pitfalls and mistakes that, that you all do. I think the important thing now is that we don't make as much mistakes as we did before, but and I would say that that's very personal. Um, that optimism that you're always thinking, things that can be faster, that's going to be the right market. And even today, I think about, for example, that that line that, oh my God, yeah, if, if we had launched 2026, it would be huge. <laughs> but not in 2019. And it sucks because a lot of effort, a lot of love, a lot of people worked and we built something really unique. The pandemic really hurt us, but maybe that's also what we needed to realize. Okay, Maybe CBD cosmetics is not what people want in the future. Now you just don't realize that it's not, right? So I would say that, 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 that encompasses a whole list of errors and mistakes, but it's always been that way, but hopefully now less than ever. Oh, that was really well said. All right, before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Oof. <laughs> Um, I guess you're always going to be surrounded by more naysayers than yaysayers. I think that's part of being an entrepreneur. And you always have to be able to discern which of those are real advice and which of those come from a dark place. Uh, because you can get very confused by a lot of advice that just is really there to help you. But you also have to be able to listen. 
and listen even to those dark forces and try to understand yourself with the confidence that you have to build what makes sense and what doesn't. But you also have to be able to look at any of that and you know, build more confidence in yourself and understand you don't know it all. Some of these things may be true. Some of these things may not be true. Uh, but just have the confidence to follow your God as long as you understand and are able to get all of these advice and realize that there's some truth in all of it. But you have to forge your own path. Because uh, as bad as you did all these, I did all these quitter things, uh, I also bet on this getting the clinics, right? And, and getting this insurance. Um, so you, you're not always wrong all the time. You're not always right. Listen to the advice, be able to take out all the noise, uh, but also get from that noise what matters. And don't eat up on the negative energy because that's just going to consume you all, all, every day. Really well said. All right. Prediction time. Oh. Al- <laughs> Alvaro. My hair will grow back again. One day. <laughs> <laughs> we already started this one, but this is if, <laughs> if, when, or how does cannabis become a global game? Oof. So I don't think there's any doubt about the if. It will be a global game. Um, when? I would say not in the next five years. Not in the next five years. And how it will be, I think we're going to have a very clear medical business and you're going to have a very clear adult use business. And the reason we've been fighting about all this insurance is because that's the best way to separate both worlds. But I don't think it's going to happen that soon because there's many drugs even that have been around for 50 years that are not approved in every country to this day. The, the issue with cannabis is that we mix a lot of things in that conversation. When a country starts to legalize cannabis, Brian, they always think about cultivation first. So that's why I talk about these barriers of entry. They never really think about the end demand. Then they realize the end demand is important, but those are two different worlds. Those are two different worlds. Uh, cultivating and, and giving to a patient are very different things. So... I don't think it's going to be that global in the next five years. I think it's going to be very regional. So you have Latam, Europe, North America, United States. You will see some supply move for sure, but that's not really where the game is going to be at. I think it's going to be about you know more development, more IP, more patience. And I think more and more, the more and more it grows, maybe some of the countries are going to be more skeptical about opening up the doors to everybody else. I mean, the United States is 15 countries in one, right? <laughs> when it comes to cannabis. Yeah. So imagine getting that first. And then we can think about globalization. There's no globalization that happens without the United States, for sure. It, it has never happened it will, in any industry. It will never happen without the United States. So we got to pay attention to that. God, we are really self-serving, huh? Kellen. <laughs> no, no, it's not that. It's, I think that the United States, of course, is a massive market. They changes the regulation of the states, open up the regulations everywhere. Yes. The moment the cannabis is no longer, if, if ever say back passes ever, the repercussions for the rest of the world are huge in terms of banking access. Uh, you know, the, the way that we can finance these projects, uh, how I can go to the bank and make sure they don't close my own personal bank account, right? So it's not just about the uh, the product size about everything that makes the United States so powerful in the global scene. There's no United Nations as ske- this schedule of cannabis without the United States. Look at even Germany is talking about legalization, but they still have to go to the European Union. The United Nations still uh, categorizes cannabis as a schedule wonder. But so it, I think the United States has to be that example. And then from a supply chain side, of course, the massive market. Uh, but then the United States can export a lot of that know-how in product development. They have, the United States have more know-how than anybody in the world regarding product uh, use, for sure. But that cannot be exported right now. So I think that's, you know, I, I don't mean to say in a bad way. I, uh, I, I was born in the United States, by the way. So um, I just think that in any part of the world, globalization is always being led by the United States. And this one has to be led as well. Yeah. And meanwhile, I will, you know, we will keep owning these two markets 
And when that opens up, then you know, we'll we'll say hi from a from the same eye level distance. Yes, I wanted to make sure to take the shot at the United States because they are frustrating me. So, Kellen, uh, <laughs> do you want to take a do you want to take a swing? I mean, Alvaro, I think, kind of touched on all the main points. And I don't think it's going to be anytime quick. I think that maybe in the next 10 years, you'll see a global market that's similar to what's going on in the US right now, right? You'll see certain countries, right, like Portugal or or other more progressive countries will have a full adult use market. It'll be very robust, like a, a California, if you will. And then you're going to have certain countries that are like a, a West Virginia, where there is absolutely no cannabis, right? You can't get it. It's it's hard, right? Like the Texas medical program as well, right? Very challenging. Um, and I think that needs to play out globally. And that's probably going to take 10 years. Um, and then in 20 years, I think in 20 years, it'll be a lot more destigmatized. I think that I don't think I don't even think 20 years is enough time to say that it'll be comparable to, to how alcohol is treated globally, maybe 50 years. I would say like we need a couple more generations to go through to actually treat cannabis on the same platform as as alcohol. But uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, the only catalyst is globally is going to have to be from the U.S. rescheduling it. What you do know, you think, Brian? Go ahead, Alvo. I agree with everything you're saying. I was saying to, um, I always call up with this example when they ask me, I'm a, I love movies, American movies in particular. I'm a movie file and... If you, you have you seen the movie Smokey and the Bandit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the entire, that's 1977. The entire premise of that movie is to bring alcohol from one state to the next, right? And this is after 60-something years of alcohol being legalized. And the entire premise is you're being chased across state lines because you're bootlegging, you're trying to bring uh, illegal alcohol. And so you think about that, like an industry that strong and, if you think about globalization of the alcohol industry, it's called beer. It really only started 15 years ago, right? Like Budweiser is now part of a Brazilian company. But before that, there was no big conglomerates. Every beer was in its own region. So even that, what we try to accelerate, I think the problem with cannabis, you say, Kelly, is that we, we want to accelerate a business process that takes decades in the making. And we want to accelerate it to two. Because oh, well, the uh, the alcohol companies are now getting it together. Yeah, but they weren't like, they were not like that in 1995. No. Huh? So uh, you had Stellar Trois, you had Budweiser, you had Sub Miller, and you had Brahma in Brazil. It took a couple of guys from Brazil to really do it 15 years ago, and we want it all to happen in cannabis tomorrow. I think that is probably when I talk about optimism and realism. You have to really think about those examples because it it doesn't happen that quick. No. No. And as we've seen in New York, things take a lot of time and hopefully in 20 years, the market is finally opened up, right? You like that, Kellen? Yeah, I like that. (laughs) I think the most important thing to remember is that, exactly like you said, that it's not going to take two decades. It's going to take a ton, a ton of decades in order to get down the walls of prohibition and to get the inter-global supply chain set up. The United States right now has fragmented markets from state by state, and we need to get our act together first before we can look to the other aspects of the globe and make good decisions. Because right now, we got a, a got a us problem, and we really need to get that together. But I think one of the areas that it most excites me, Alvaro, is that the data aspect your team is bringing together, because that is what's focused here in the United States is missing, I think, is more uh, focus on data to change decisions, because we need to start having data-based decisions to help people make better decisions. And I think what your team's doing will really make a big caseway and hopefully that change some of the lawmakers here in America. Thank you, Brian. Yes, that's the plan. That's the plan. So Alvaro, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more about Chiron and they want to read some of the data. Where can they find you? So, oh, I mean, myself personally, I'm always available on LinkedIn, uh, the company investors.chiron.ca. Um, and yeah, no, I think I use my LinkedIn account very often uh, to transmit a lot of these things that we do. It's mostly always a shout out to my team, which that's the most important part of our company. Um, but certainly a lot of these conversations that the United States have been going through LinkedIn. Um, I'm very active there. I'm just trying to understand and try to tell everybody how great the work we do. It takes time to... Uh, but if you look at the latest, you see all the posts that we made on, on how big a deal this is for the Colombian news media. Um, I don't think... 
you know, since CNN did Sanjay Gupta, uh, sorry, his name is Gupta, 20 years ago, they barely put out something on cannabis, but here it's every day there's news about it. And that's very exciting. Yeah, that's really exciting. We'll link it all up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it, Kellen. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.